The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. As we approach the festive season once again, if you are listening to this episode when it was originally released, it is time to again consider elements of folklore relating to that time of year. It is, of course, a time which is traditionally extremely rich in this area, and is also a time of great celebration, whether of religious significance or for those older celebrations. We will be looking at some of these traditions over the next two episodes of the Folklore Podcast. The second of these episodes will be a guest interview, and I'll tell you more about that at the end of this episode. For today, though, the narrative is down to me. For many children at this time of year, a trip to the pantomime is a must-do event, and often fills that empty gap between Christmas and New Year. But performance at times of annual significance is very old, of course, and the pantomime is but one area which links into the broader gamut of folk plays. The Mummer's Play is a short dramatic piece constructed of rhyming text, and featuring a set of common characters who will be familiar to many. Performances are mostly associated with Christmas, but in some areas they are performed at other calendrical festivals, such as Halloween or Easter. We may return to these other folk plays in future episodes of the podcast, but today we will concentrate on the Christmas mumming tradition. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Christmas or Christmas not, I hope old Father Christmas will never be forgot. A mug of your strong beer to make us dance and sing and money in your pocket is a very fine thing. Now Christmas comes but once a year, and when it does it brings good cheer. Roast beef, mince pie, who do love them better than I? Now room, room, room I say, 
for I'm the man as brings St. George this way. In comes I, St. George, the man of valor bold. With my spear and sword at my side, I've won three crowns of gold. And that fiery dragon, I did fight and put him to the slaughter. And by that means, I did win the king of Egypt's daughter! <laughs> There are three main constructs of the traditional mummer's play. One is the recruiting sergeant play, which features a plot surrounding a man who leaves his lady and joins the army, with the lady subsequently marrying a fool character. This derivation is mostly associated with Plough Monday festivities. Another is the sword dance play, where the folk dance tends to make centre stage over the acting element of the play. The extract which you heard after the theme music at the start of this episode comes from the most commonly known variation of the mummer's play, that of the hero and combat play. This is the type which is most performed around Yule celebrations, and which features a cast of characters which will be familiar to many. The play begins with a prologue, after which there are a number of challenges, and then a big sword fight between the hero and a villain. During this fight, one of the characters is slain. Sometimes this may be the villain, and sometimes the hero. It is at this point that we see the entrance of a key character who's common to all the variations of the Mummer's play, that of the Quack Doctor. He will perform a miraculous cure, and the slain character will be revived. The curing of the slain is often a major part of the play, and will usually have more comedic elements to it. Finally, a number of more minor character roles come in, including Beelzebub, and the play is closed, often with a song. I probably don't need to point out to too many of you the importance of this scene of death and revival or rebirth in folklore. We see it in so many things, from religious beliefs, through to the seasons and the turning of the wheel of the year. There are many old celebrations which existed to ensure a successful start to the year, as the season of winter transitioned into that of spring. We have explored the law pertaining to these cycles in stories created with the sun and moon, the weather, and in other ways. It is possibly because of the importance of this aspect of death and rebirth, and all of the lore associated with it, that for many years the view was so widely held that the mummer's play was just a folk practice which emerged from pagan, pre-Christian fertility rites. This is also something which we've discussed before, the idea of so many aspects of our tradition coming from pagan origins where pagan is a massively broad brush applied to everything. But the actual origins are probably more complicated than this, and certainly more difficult to trace. So, why was this view prevalent for so long? In the podcast episode on traditional witchcraft, I explained how it was often the case that people following a particular path sought to legitimise aspects by setting out to prove that they developed from older practices, where there is not always proof to be had. It is this kind of seeking out of ancient origins in modern times, without an actual lead to start with, 
which is probably what happened with the search for the origins of the Mummer's play. Scholars were convinced that the plays must have come from pre-Christian times because of their construction, and so they compared what was being performed in the versions of the play in their time with what the historical record showed, or what was believed to have been the case for events 2,000 years ago. The problem with this approach is that, as we shall see, there is a massive gap in the historical record between pre-Christian times and the 19th and 20th centuries, where there is no evidence to trace through. The approach that was taken was just to overlook or ignore this historical period. Evidentially, of course, this is very unsound. And it is for this reason that people began to look elsewhere for origins and change their theories. Although they are often linked or confused, the Mummer's play is quite distinct from the medieval mystery play, although we may return to that topic in a future episode too. The mystery plays were more concerned with the telling of biblical narratives with tableau and song. Some people dispute the etymology, as we've heard so many times with folk terms. The word mummer most likely derives from the Germanic mummer or vermummen, the act of wrapping or disguising your face. Hence there is a very strong link with the ancient practice of guising, which we also often see at this time of year in Yule festive traditions. The history of the plays, as I've already mentioned, is somewhat contested. The mummer as a performer can be found in the 13th century for certain. At the marriage of the daughter of King Edward I, which took place at Christmas time, we find mention of mummers of the court, as well as the traditional musicians. This performance may have been a form of mask, and hence be similar in some respects to the mummers' plays that we now know in that a troupe of actors were staging it, but we cannot say for certain what the elements of the performance would have been, and hence any link past the name of mummer is purely speculative. We can say with more certainty that the mummer's play emerges in around the 18th century. The earliest existing text for a play was published in a chapbook which, although undated by the publisher, has been shown to have come out between 1746 and 1769. You can learn more about chapbooks in Season 1 of the podcast in an episode looking at their history and some of the folklore contained within them. The title of this particular chapbook was Alexander and the King of England, a mock play as it is acted by the mummers every Christmas. This suggests that the play was already in existence at the time, but it is quite possible that the company of mummers would have been based on a stage rather than performing using house visits or the like. It was not uncommon for 18th century theatrical groups to publish scripts in this way. A poem called The Mobiad, written in 1738, includes a footnote quoting from a speech in a play spoken by the character of St George, and saying that it had been performed in Exeter around that time. The words in this quote are very similar to lines in the chapbook. It is the case, therefore, that texts only start to appear late into the 18th century, 
but then they start to become more widespread. Some of these very early plays have identical lines with the chapbooks, but many are similar and yet paraphrase the earliest publications. This would seem to suggest that the emergence of the play is round about this time, otherwise it would be more likely that there were earlier existing versions still available. During the height of the chapbook publications in the mid-1800s, we find more version of the Mummers' plays and their derivatives. One is entitled The Peace Egg. Pace-egging, or the pace-egg plays, are performed at Easter time, but they have many similarities to the Christmas mumming traditions. Another chapbook from Northern Ireland is titled The Christmas Rhyme. These and other similar publications certainly seem to be responsible for a wide spreading of the well-known hero and combat form of the mummer's play. The 19th century is also the time that we see folklore emerging both as a recognised discipline and also as an interest which leads to the publication of more books on the subject. Books such as Chambers' Book of Days became very popular and were often used to inform the writing of folk plays. But also, conversely, folklore books began to publish more of the plays. This led to more performances and hence folklorists began to collect more versions of the plays. The popularity therefore snowballed exponentially. During the early to mid part of the 20th century, a massive decline was seen in the performance of folk plays, such as the Mummers. This was in the most part down to the two great wars in that period. The First World War certainly led to far less performances, in no small part, sadly, due to the deaths of so many men, as mummers were traditionally males. Although there was a bit of a revival in the plays during the interwar period, World War II again drastically reduced the number of plays being performed. It is the more general revival of folk traditions in the 1960s which sees the mummers becoming more widespread once again using those traditional texts which emerged from the publication of the chapbooks. But, if there were no mummers' plays prior to these publications, from where did they come? We know, as already mentioned, that the mummers themselves existed before the plays, but they were more like the geysers who visited houses and the like. Also, of course, many of the characters portrayed in the plays are much older, such as St George. There are older play texts which feature characters such as George or Robin Hood, but these texts are not particularly similar to the texts of the Mummers' plays. The character of the Quack Doctor is an important one which may provide some clues. He crops up in many earlier plays, most notably in early pantomimes, which themselves come from the Italian Commedia dell'arte. Most of the key characters from the Commedia transitioned into English pantomime traditions and stayed there for a long time, certainly until the beginning of the 20th century. Pantomimes were hugely popular in the 18th and 19th centuries and would have informed other customs of the time, including theatrical works. We may find similarities in the methods of costuming in both the early pantomime and the mummer's plays. Notably, characters would wear the same costume regardless of the setting or plot of the piece, such as Harlequin's famous diamond-patterned clothes. 
In one of the chapbooks, we find an illustration of Beelzebub, a mumming character, wearing a Harlequin costume. And in many of the broadsides featuring the Quack Doctor, he has an assistant who also resembles Harlequin. The popularity of the pantomime before the development of the Mummer's plays suggests that the former provides influence for the latter. The Mummer's play is very much a British tradition, but as you would expect, it spread with the migration of people into the British colonies. Newfoundland is an area which is particularly rich in customs and traditions which came about in this way, and here we find the custom of mummering. This shares many aspects with the traditional mummer's play, although it is now primarily a house-visiting custom rather than a performance which takes place in a particular location. In this way, it shares similar aspects with the guising traditions we mentioned earlier. Mummering takes place on Old Twelfth Night, where participants visit the houses of friends and neighbours. They might use old pieces of clothing to disguise themselves, and women would often dress as men and vice versa. Subverting norms in this way is a common practice in these old traditions, and we find it in other guising traditions especially, such as mock mare customs. There would often be singing, drinking, and games involved with the visit of the mummers in Newfoundland. House owners would try and guess the identities of the visitors, who would have to remove their disguise if they were correctly named. A small meal would be provided, which would usually involve Christmas cake and a fruit wine or cordial of some sort. The mummers would bring their own instruments and entertain the providers of the fair in return. Mummering dates back to the earlier settling on Newfoundland, and like many folk traditions in that place, it seems to have enjoyed something of a revival in recent years. Now the credit for this revival is ascribed in no small part to a song, Any Mummers Allowed In, often called just the Mummers Song. Released in 1983 by a two-man band, Simani, the original pressing of 2,000 singles sold out before the song had even got onto the radio, and it has since become the quintessential Christmas Newfoundland song. Every Christmas it can be heard in pubs, clubs, houses, on the radio, and also performed as a backing to many mummers' plays. Here it is. Don't sing like Christmas if the mummers are not here. Granny would say as she'd knit in her chair. Things have gone modern, and I suppose that's the cause. Christmas is not like it was. Mark, what's the noise out by the porch door? Granny, tis mummers, there's twenty or more. Her old withered face brightens up with a grin. Any mummers, nice mummers, loud in. Come in, lovely mummers, don't bother the snow. We can wipe up the water, sure, after you go. Sit if you can, or on some mummer's knee. Let's see if we know who you be. There's big ones and small ones and tall ones and thin. Boys dressed as women and girls dressed as men. Pumps on their backs and mitts on their feet. My blizzard will die with the heat. There's only one there that I think that I know. 
That's all fellas standing or alongside the stove. He's shaking his fist for to make me not tell. Must be Willie from out on the hill. Now that one's a stranger if there ever was one. With his underwear stuffed and his trap door undone. Is he wearing his mother's big party to brag? I knows, but I'm not gonna say. Don't suppose you find mummers would turn down a drop. No homebrew or elky, whatever you got. Not the one with his rubber boots on the wrong feet. He's enough for to do him all week. Suppose you can dance, yes, they all nod their heads. They've been tapping their feet ever since they came in. Now that the drinks have been all passed around, the mummers are planking her down. Be careful the lamp and hold on to the stove. Don't swing granny hard, cause you know that she's old. No need for to care how you buckles the floor, cause the mummers have danced here before. My God, how hot is it? We'd better go. I allow we'll all get the devil's own cold. Good night and good Christmas, mummers, me dears. Please God, we will see you next year. Good night and good Christmas, mummers, me dears. Please God, we will see you next year. Often, workshops are now run on how to make some of the items involved with the tradition, including hobby horses and also wren sticks. Now let's have a look at the latter of these now. The wren stick comes from the tradition of the wren boys, a custom which is not found so much these days but used to be extremely popular in Ireland. Wren boys would go out onto the streets on St Stephen's Day. In England this is Boxing Day, the 26th of December. And indeed they still do in a few places in Ireland. In these places now an effigy of the bird is carried in a branch of holly, or in a cage, but originally actual wrens were hunted and killed prior to the day of the tradition, and their bodies were used. This took place into the first few years of the 20th century in some areas. Accounts of the wren boys of County Kildare state that in the run-up to St Stephen's Day, the birds were hunted and knocked over with a stick or stone. Two or three of them are tied to a branch torn from a holly bush, which is decorated with coloured ribbons. On St Stephen's Day, small parties of young boys carry one of these bushes about the country, and visit the houses along the road, soliciting coin or eatables. At each house they come to, they repeat a version of a song, which varies in different localities. All versions seem disjointed, and in no way refer to St Stephen's Day, nor to the object of killing the wren. At the end of the custom, each wren would be buried with a penny. It's not certain why the wren features in this particular custom. Now, a couple of differing explanations both suggest that it is because of the treachery of the bird that it is hunted. One story tells that when the Irish forces were mounting a secret offensive on Cromwell's soldiers, a wren standing on one of the drums woke the men just in time to prevent them from being attacked. Another story says that the bird betrayed St Stephen, on whose feast day the wren boys go out, by flapping its wings and hence showing the people who were searching for the saint where he was hiding. There are a couple of other possibilities. 
One is rooted in Christianization practices, where older beliefs and celebrations were being subsumed. According to medieval texts, the Irish word for the wren comes from the word drian, which means druid bird. Yet another says that the root is the legend of Cleona, a mythological woman of the underworld. She would entice men to the ocean before drowning them in the sea. When a way of destroying Cleona was discovered, she was said to have effected her escape by turning herself into a wren. Because of this, the punishment meted upon her for her crimes was to be forced to transform into a wren every Christmas day, and to die by human hands. Although predominantly an Irish tradition, wren boys were found in France and England as well. In the French tradition, the first person to kill the bird was declared king. Again, there are parallels here with the subversion associated with the mock mare, and with other similar events. Interestingly, it was considered unlucky to kill a wren on any other day of the year other than St Stephen's Day. In some areas of Ireland, the wren boy's performances are less like a procession or perambulation, and more akin to the performances given by mummer's groups. The plays which are performed are said to be very ancient, although this cannot be proven. They include ceremonial combat scenes, often with wooden swords. Also similar to some of the other traditions which we've discussed is the fact that some of the wren boys would dress as women and others would wear masks which would sometimes be painted black. They would visit houses and collect money in the same manner as the Newfoundland traditions. When the door was answered to their calling, the householder would usually be met with a verse such as Up with the kettle and down with the pan, give us a penny to bury the ran. Once again, dancers, musicians and singers were common in these groups, and there was often an important performance element. Variations on the Ren boys' rhyme would also be recited, such as The ran, the ran, the king of all birds, on St Stephen's day was caught in the furs. His body is little, but his family is great, so rise up, landlady, and give us a trait. And if your trait be of the best, your soul in heaven can find its rest. And if your trait be of the small, it won't plays the boys at all. A glass of whisky and a bottle of beer. Merry Christmas and a glad new year. So up with the kettle and down with the pan. And give us a penny to bury the ran. On the next episode of the Folklore Podcast, we'll be examining folklore from the Bavarian and Austrian areas relating to the Christmas period. And no, it's not the Krampus. Now he's seen a big revival lately and as such he's been widely discussed on many other podcasts or in magazine articles and the like. I wanted to look at a different equivalent and so next time we'll be discussing the figure of Perchta, the alpine pagan goddess who roamed the land during midwinter, visiting houses during the twelve Christmas days. Joining me to tell us all about this will be my special guest Al Ridenauer, author of The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas and the creator and host of the brilliant Bone and Sickle podcast. To finish today's episode, here is a recording of the West Clare Wren Boys performing very much in the Mummers style. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Randa ran the king of all birds. On St Stephen's day he was caught in the furs. We followed this ran three miles from home through hedges and ditches and great big stones. We caught him at last and we broke his knee and we hung him up in an ivy tree. 
So up with the kettle now and down with the pan. Shove back the chairs and let us begin. podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.